This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, would you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Acts and also to the book of Daniel? If you brought your Bible with you, then you can just see the past, the passages, the chapter and verse numbers in your bulletin. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14. If you didn't bring your own Bible with you, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back that's within reach. And if you're looking for Acts 1, you'll find that on page 855, 855. And Daniel 7 is on page 697, 697. As I mentioned at the opening of today's service, uh, today is a, is a topical message, not an expositional one. Uh, so not only are, am I using two primary texts, but these will not be the only ones I'll mention. And I'll ask you even to turn with me as we go along to a couple of other passages as well uh, during today's sermon. As you're turning there and finding the place, though, I want to remind you that today uh, is a, a, a part of our ongoing study through the Apostles' Creed. Inside your bulletin, you can find the Apostles' Creed, at least the, the particular version that we are using of the Apostles' Creed. There are various versions that differ with a slight variation. Uh, the version that we're using is on the inside right-hand uh, side of the bulletin. And what I'm going to, to do is, is skip ahead a little bit in, in light of uh, today being Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday to the stanza that reads in the Apostles' Creed, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So during the year 22, FBC Diana is about once a month or so looking at individual stanzas from the Apostles' Creed and trying to understand what is it that Christians have been confessing, professing to believe for centuries now. Uh, The Apostles' Creed being uh, the earliest known formal Uh, widely distributed and affirmed creed among Christianity. Today is going to be a content-heavy and fast-paced sermon on these topics. Uh, Sometimes the sermon is meant to call us to action. Do this. Don't do that. Today's sermon is going to be more believe this. Uh, This is what the Bible teaches. Believe in light of this. Uh, Understand that this is what God would have us believe. And of course, our belief then affects every aspect, it should affect every aspect of our life. What we think, what we say, and of course, how we act or how we live. So I'm going to ask you this morning, uh, for those who are regulars, buckle up and put on your thinking caps. For those who are, who are guests, uh, I'm not sure what your church experience is, but I usually preach for about 50 minutes. And again, today is going to be an, an even more than normal content heavy, so I'm asking you to come along with me. You'll get more out of today if you participate actively in what is going on and follow along. Well, with that as a, as a brief and hopefully somewhat intimidating introduction, let's turn to our passage this morning to Acts chapter 1. Would you mind standing with me? Standing up while we read the primary passage is the, one of the ways we try to show respect for God's word. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and then I'm going to flip quickly to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and read those all as a section together. Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy of the of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, picking it up in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. Uh, The main idea, as I've mentioned a couple of times now, uh, this is a topical message. The main idea is something I've put together and I'm, I'm attempting to draw from various places in Scripture in order to prove this main idea, to argue this point, that we might believe that the Bible does actually teach this stuff and that we might believe it and live because of it. Uh, the main point, the main idea is that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that he presently rules as God the Father's anointed king. For those of you who like to take notes, there'll be four points today. Uh, one, that Jesus really lived and died. Two, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Three, that he ascended. And four, that Jesus presently rules as king. Well, point number one, I'm going to use Acts chapter one as a branching off point to various places. So don't lose your place in Acts chapter one. We'll, we'll revisit that uh, a number of times today. But look right there in Acts chapter one, verse one, and see that in the first verse of the book of Acts, Luke was possibly acknowledging a benefactor named Theophilus, somebody who supported his recording of all the stuff that he did in the book of Acts. Or this is possibly a pseudonym, a a false name, a fake name that's sort of a stand in to represent all those who loved God. Theophilus is a word that literally means God lover. So it could have been someone who was sponsoring his efforts to write the book of Acts uh, and also his gospel. Or it could have been a stand-in for anybody who might pick up this book, uh, these two books, the book, the uh, gospel and the book of Acts, who loved God and who wanted to see what Luke wrote. But at any rate, the opening verses of the book of Acts, they are packed with important content. And Lord willing, I'm going to try to unpack some of this content today. Now, again, as I've said, the bulk of my content, the sermon, will be devoted to the topics of Christ's resurrection from the dead and his ascension to glory. But before I lead us down this road, we kind of need to look at the big map and see where we are. Now, Luke says in verse one of the book of Acts, he says that he has dealt with, he's already dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach 
in his first book. So the book of Acts then is a sequel. It's a part two of Luke's gospel account. Therefore, Luke tells the reader that everything he wrote in the book of Acts builds off of what Jesus had already begun to do and to teach. So we need to ask ourselves, what was it that Jesus had already done and taught according to Luke and the other gospel writers? We'll dive more into this in our next sermon on the Apostles' Creed as we look at the historical Jesus, and that'll happen in June. But for now, we at least want to just touch on the facts, the facts that Jesus of Nazareth really did live and that he really did die. His life and death are as much a part of the wonderful story of the gospel as his resurrection and ascension. They, they all fit together to form the greatest story ever told. The Bible teaches us almost everything we know about Jesus. Of course, there are extra biblical sources, historical documents, archaeological finds, and other stuff which corroborate the biblical evidence. But the Bible is the only place where we can go to learn what Jesus truly did and said. These gospel writers particularly, they either heard directly from Jesus' mouth what he was saying and saw with their own eyes what he did, which is the case with John and Matthew, or they were closely associated with someone who did, which is the case with uh, Mark and Luke. And the gospel writers all believed that Jesus was the culmination of something God had been doing for centuries, something God had been predicting for centuries, really from the beginning of time. Jesus came on the scene in one sense, like all other humans. He was born of a woman. He was an infant in need of care and protection. To think of such a thing blows my mind. But in another sense, Jesus was unlike every other human. He was born of God, a child who was announced as the universal Lord by a multitude of angels at his birth. And when Jesus began his earthly ministry at about 30 years old, he began to announce that the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in him. Jesus showed his power over demons. He healed all sorts of diseases, and he even brought dead people back to life. And all of this and more was evidence that Jesus was and is the Messiah or the Christ of Old Testament prophecy. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a huge claim with big implications. But the Messiah, or the Christ, who came was not really the one that many in Israel were expecting. They were looking for a powerful king, one who would subdue all of Israel's enemies and rule the world with authority from a throne in Jerusalem. Instead, what they got was a suffering servant who gave himself over to be killed by his enemies and who died a scandalous death outside of Jerusalem where those who were accursed by God are sent to die. Ah, but friends, this is precisely the kind of Messiah or Christ that we need. Before God's anointed king comes to crush all his enemies, we need him to remove our name from the enemies list. You see, all humans, including me and you, we are sinful rebels. We have all disobeyed God's law. We have rejected God's authority over us when we sin, we know full well that it is sin. And we foolishly imagine that somehow we'll get away with it. But we will not. In fact, the Bible teaches that Jesus himself will stand in judgment over and against all sinners everywhere. 
The Bible teaches us that Jesus himself will be the one at the end of time who unleashes God's wrath against all sinners. And yet Jesus, the Bible tells us, is both judge and savior. He's both king and redeemer. When Jesus Christ came to live and die, he did both, the Bible tells us, as a substitute. He lived the obedient life God requires of all sinners. And Jesus died under the penalty of God's curse, giving himself as the sacrifice which satisfies God's justice. In his life and death, Jesus earned salvation for all those he came to save. And by faith or trust in his good work, all sinners may turn from their sin and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus really lived. Jesus really died. And he did both on behalf of guilty sinners like us. And we may all celebrate the grace of God on display in Jesus Christ. It is my sincere prayer that God would grant us all faith and repentance so that we might turn from our sin and put our trust in this marvelous Savior. And if you want to know more about what this means or what this looks like, you can talk to me or some other Christian as soon as this service is over. Point number one, Jesus really did live and he really did die. Point number two is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If Jesus' death was the end of the story, then all I've described so far would be meaningless. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But as Paul also wrote, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this was Luke's claim at the beginning of the book of Acts. Look there at verse three, if you're still there in Acts chapter one. Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them, that is to his disciples, after his suffering, that is, that is referring to his death, by many proofs. Well, the proofs that Luke is talking about here are the ways in which Jesus showed himself, his disciples, that he had truly been raised from death to life again. Jesus wasn't just a figment of their imagination. He wasn't an apparition or a ghost. Peter testified to the Jewish and Roman leaders uh, in, his, in his writings that Jesus had been put to death by these leaders by hanging him, Jesus, on a tree. But God raised Jesus up on the third day and made Jesus appear not to all people, but to us, Peter's talking about. And then Peter said, we who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Well, Peter's point in testifying to eating and drinking with Jesus is after his resurrection is that dead guys and ghosts don't eat or drink. Paul later argued that Jesus appeared first to Peter and the rest of the, of the disciples. And then also, Paul said, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom who are still alive. And Paul's point in saying that is, is if you have doubts about Jesus' resurrection, well, you can go talk to any one of those folks who were alive and saw him alive and well after his crucifixion. You know, for the last uh, few decades, it's been common for news stories to pop up around this time of year, which raise new questions or new objections about Jesus' resurrection. Any honest historian will tell you that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the most attested ancient historical fact we know. And the supposed new questions that you hear about today are just a recirculation of the earliest attempts to deny the obvious. 
There were, there were uh, ways, there were efforts to try to deny the obvious in the very first century, right after Jesus was raised from the dead. So the Jewish leaders, they paid the Roman soldiers to, in order for them to tell the story that Jesus' disciples came by night and stole them away from us while we were asleep. You can find this recorded in Matthew chapter 28. So right from the very beginning, there were already attempts to say, to give some explanations to why the tomb is empty. But the fact is, the tomb is empty. And the most plausible explanation is that Jesus did exactly as he said he would. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. The rest of the New Testament after the Gospels, the Gospels focusing explicitly on Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. Well, the rest of the New Testament points back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as that pivotal moment which shapes all of human history, including the part that's still future to us. The calendar of the Western world is evidence of this very reality. All time bends around an event, a single event in human history. There was a time before Jesus Christ and there was a time after Jesus Christ. Whether you measure the calendar by B.C. and A.D. or by B.C.E. and C.E., your calendar still focuses on the life and death and resurrection of a guy. The God-man Jesus Christ. And one of the main reasons that Jesus' resurrection is so important is that Jesus has promised to raise others in the same way that he himself was raised. Jesus not only has power over his own grave, he has power over all graves. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And again, in John chapter six, Jesus said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, our Christian hope is not to depart. We are not looking forward to a day when we shall fly to some home far away. No, we are looking forward to a day when Christ shall come here to this earth to renew every aspect of it and to raise to glory, power, and immortality those who have died in Christ, whose bodies were put in the ground as dishonorable, weak, and imperishable. We as Christians are not waiting for escape. We are waiting for resurrection. This is the Bible's teaching and the gospel's central focus. Friends, we can know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because the Bible tells us so. And all history confirms it too. And because Christ was raised, we can rest assured that everyone who repents and believes in him shall also be raised just as we sang a little while ago. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. But what happened after that? After Jesus' resurrection? Well, the Bible says, and the Apostles' Creed affirms, that Jesus ascended into heaven. And this is point number three. Jesus ascended. I think that the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is probably the aspect of his person and work that is least familiar to us. Or it's probably the feature of his life that we don't realize is as important as it really is. 
I can't remember ever hearing a Sunday sermon preached on this in the churches where I grew up. And I'm not sure if anybody ever talked about it, uh, if at all, um, in the churches that I belonged before coming here. Uh, Some of us have been studying through the book of Revelation since this uh, last September. And it's a fascinating book. We do this on uh, Wednesday nights. Uh, Just before the uh, just just about the whole book of Revelation is a record of visions that the Apostle John was given. He saw and heard all sorts of things that God revealed to him. He was the last prophet to receive special revelation from God. And John's whole account, it looks and sounds and feels just like some of the portions of uh, the, the Old Testament prophetic literature. The first vision that John saw was a picture of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. This is Revelation chapter 1, a really great passage if you want to go back and read that one sometime later on today. Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1 as John gets a picture of this resurrected and ascended Jesus. He's described as one like a son of man, Revelation 1.13, who died and is alive forevermore, verse 18. Jesus now holds the keys, that is, he has the authority over death and Hades. Hades is just a word for the grave. And John saw that Jesus had eyes of fire and his face was shining like the sun. But how did we get from Acts chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 1? Jesus ascending into heaven and then John seeing a picture of this ascended, uh, brilliant, glorious Jesus Christ. Does the Bible tell us anywhere when Jesus ascended to take his seat at the right hand of the Father? Well, still there in Acts chapter 1, Luke told us, In verse 3, that Jesus had presented himself alive to his disciples and that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's all there in verse 3. Then Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem to receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. And then there was some confusion about exactly uh, uh, Jesus would complete all that God said the Messiah or Christ would do. That's verses 4 to 6. And finally, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses in the world, very much like the end of the book of Matthew and the great commission that Jesus gives there. And then Luke records in verse 9 in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus had said these things, as they, his disciples, were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verses 10 and 11 announce the promise of Christ's return. And if you want to hear more about that, well, we'll get to that section of the Apostles' Creed in July. But for today, let's see how the Bible itself picks up on what happened next after Jesus was lifted up in a cloud in Acts chapter 1. Philippians chapter 2 is one of the places where the New Testament tells us about what happened when Jesus ascended. There, the Bible describes God the Son as humbling himself, taking on a human nature and performing the task of the Redeemer on earth. If you're looking for that, you can uh, flip with me in your own Bible to uh, Philippians chapter 2. If you have that hardback black Bible, it's it's on page 921, 921. That's a a passage we're going to go to next. Uh, But after Jesus uh, is humiliated in coming to the earth and performing the task of the Redeemer, Philippians chapter 2 tells us about him then being elevated or glorified by God the Father. It's also really interesting to note that this passage in in Philippians chapter 2 is an early Christian hymn, very likely, or an early Christian creed. Well, let's turn to Philippians 2 together and see the humility of God the Son and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let's just read it together, and I'll comment on it a little bit as we go, picking up at the very end of verse 5 to see Christ's 
humble and selfless example, which is what the Apostle Paul is pointing to there in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, very end of verse 5, now picking up in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In this passage, don't leave there yet, I'm still going to comment on it. In this passage, we see, among many things, that God the Son took on human form. You see that in verse 8? And became the infant, and then adolescent, and then man, Jesus of Nazareth. The purpose for which God the Son became a man, the man Jesus Christ, was to serve, verse 7, to serve sinners by his obedience, there in verse 8, and by his death upon a cross, still there in verse 8. To say that God the Son was obedient to the point of death, which, which is what Paul says in verse 8, is to tap into the biblical concept that's commonly referred to as the covenant of redemption. That agreement or covenant which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made among themselves before the foundation of the world to each play distinct roles in the ultimate salvation of sinners. God the Son obediently went to the cross as part of the overarching plan by which the triune God decreed to glorify himself in the salvation of sinners. Now, if I've just lost you with all that theological jargon, let's reconnect in verse 9 of Philippians 2. Verse 9, if we look there, we see the, the verse starts with therefore in the English standard or wherefore in the King James or for this reason in the NASB. The point is, is that it was specifically because of Jesus' obedience that God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus earned an exalted status as a real man, a genuine man, one who the author of Hebrews tells us was made like us in every respect, one who even, as the author of Hebrews continues on, was tempted as we are, and yet he remained without sin. God the Son has always been God. But Jesus, the man, was born in Bethlehem. He lived as a perfectly obedient image bearer of God, and he remained obedient even unto death, at which point he broke death because death had no claim on him. At which point he commissioned his disciples because there was still work for them to do. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, receiving that name which he had earned as the God-man. And what exalted name did God the Father bestow upon Jesus Christ? Well, look there in Philippians chapter 2, down to verse 11. What name does every tongue confess? Doesn't it say that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? And what does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? Well, this is a title of authority. This is a title of ownership. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is king. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no doubt that Jesus' ascension is directly connected to his status as king or Lord. But there is some confusion among Christians today about when exactly Jesus was or will be given that status as resurrected and ascended Messiah. The last question that I want to address this morning is, when was it or when will it be that Jesus is crowned as Lord by God the Father? Put another way, when will Jesus reign as God's anointed king over all the cosmos? Well, I've already put my cards on the table in the title of my fourth point. Jesus presently rules as king right now. Point number four and finishing up our time together this morning. There's still a bit of content to go, so don't take those thinking caps off. Stay along with me. The Apostles' Creed affirms, on the third day, he, Jesus, rose again from the dead, past tense. He, Jesus, ascended into heaven, past tense, and sits, present tense, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I wholeheartedly agree with this early Christian confession, but our ultimate authority is not any creed or confession. Our highest authority in matters of faith and practice is the Bible. We must never rest our hope upon creeds, but upon Scripture, because it alone is God's Word. So what does Scripture say? When does the Bible teach that Jesus took his seat at the right hand of God the Father? When did or does the God-man become crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords? I want to address this last question. I told you we're still going to be going through some content-heavy stuff, so keep your thinking caps on. But let's do this in two ways. First, I want to address the question by by affirming that Jesus' ascension and seat at the Father's right hand are central claims to the New Testament gospel. They're central to it. Jesus' ascension and his taking his seat at the Father's right hand. The second sort of sub-point to point number four of the sermon is that Jesus repeatedly claimed to be the Son of Man And this was his direct claim to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So first, sub point under point number four. The earliest gospel presentations not only included a reference to Jesus' status as reigning Lord at the right hand of God the Father, but those early preachers centered their focus on Jesus reigning as Lord right now. Two examples I want to offer to you evidence that this is true. One is Acts chapter 2. So if you're still there in Acts chapter 1, or at least you have your finger there like I asked you to do at the very beginning, then you're being a good student and you're already close to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, if you're looking at it in those hardback black ones, maybe you've lost your place. It's on page 855. And we'll be looking a bit past there in verses 29 and 30 to 36 in just a moment. But Acts chapter 2 is the first place we're going. Near the end of Acts chapter 2, Peter was publicly preaching the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost. And verses 29 to 36 are the climax of his evangelistic message. So in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 29, Peter says at this climactic moment of his evangelistic message to those who are gathered there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and Peter says, Brothers, fellow Jews, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he, David, both died and was buried, and his, David's tomb, is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, to David, that he, God, would set one of his, David's descendants, on his, David's throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, would not be abandoned to Hades, that is the grave, 
nor did his, Christ's, flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses, Peter said. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Christ, has poured out on us, has poured out uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here's the clincher. Peter said, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's point is that Jesus has been already in the first century, while Peter and the rest of the apostles were still alive, exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 33, that Jesus had already been given the titles of Lord and Christ by God himself. Verse 36, Peter was arguing that the arrival of the Holy Spirit was evidence of these present realities. Because the Holy Spirit has come, you can know that that stuff is true. So according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, about 2,000 years ago, was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to rule and to reign as Lord. Just a little bit to the right of there in Acts chapter 7, I'll show you another example. In Acts chapter 7, we'll see that Stephen was preaching the gospel later on in this unfolding of the storyline of the book of Acts. At the very end of Acts chapter 7, we get to the climactic moment in Stephen's message like we've already read Peter's. Uh, you regulars know that we've been studying through the book of Acts uh, on Sundays for, for quite some time now. So you, you might recall that Stephen was falsely accused and he was facing his imminent death. He was about to die. He was falsely accused and standing before those who had the power of life and death in their hands. His last words in this proclamation of the gospel were a powerful assertion of the very same thing that Peter had already uh, claimed. Look with me at verses 54 to 56 in Acts chapter 7. Stephen had been giving the Jewish leaders a sort of a, a history lesson throughout the Old Testament. And finally, he got to the present day when he accused them of murdering the righteous one of God. That's in verse 52. Now, this reference to the righteous one of God is the Messiah or the Christ that God had been promising all along. Well, they couldn't bear to hear any more of what Stephen had to say. So Luke tells us in verse 54 that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But then Stephen was given a vision of God's glory and he saw, verse 55, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And very interestingly, Stephen says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, this statement sent the Jewish leaders over the edge. And Luke tells us that they cried out with a loud voice. They shouted and they stopped their ears. They yelled and closed their ears. They couldn't possibly hear anything else Stephen had to say. They were done listening and they rushed together at him to kill him. Stephen, like Peter before him, was telling the people around him that Jesus was and is the ascended Lord who had already taken his place at the right hand of God, which is the symbolic way of saying that he is God's anointed king sitting on his throne right now. And this claim is not tangential to the gospel of the early Christians. It is central to it. 
This is the main thrust of their gospel presentation. Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe and trust in him. Friends, this is already sufficient evidence to show that from Scripture, Jesus is presently ruling and reigning as the king of the cosmos. The gospel of the New Testament not only includes this point, but it is the central fact of the gospel that Jesus is the resurrected and ascended king of kings. All other kings, generals, and presidents, past, present, and future, must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is king. And he reigns above all earthly powers at this very moment. There is much by way of application to do with that proclamation. That Jesus is king. What I'm saying is, there's a whole lot that we ought to believe and say and live like because Jesus is king. But before we get to the very brief application that I'm going to offer you this morning, there's one more subpoint to this last point. In order to understand this claim that Jesus made to be the son of man and the importance of it, I'm going to do with you this morning, I'm going to teach, for those of you who don't know anything about it, a little biblical theology. Biblical theology is that kind of part art and part science of trying to see how the Bible develops themes and concepts and types throughout the unfolding of Scripture. There are repeated and expanding themes that occur in the Bible, which kind of stand out as flashing lights, all pointing to a bigger reality than themselves. So an example of that is the garden that starts off in Eden, it expands to Israel, and it culminates in the universal church. There's the theme of salvation through judgment, which again begins at the fall of Adam and Eve, is repeated in the exodus of the people of God from Egypt, and ultimately culminates in the uh, salvation that God provides for believers through the midst of the judgment that he's bringing to the world across uh, all time and space. Well, these are just two examples. There are many others. The biblical theological theme or concept that I want to show today is the use of the phrase son of man so that we will see and understand a little bit better Jesus' claim to be the Let me build my case and teach this theme in four steps. First, the phrase, the Son of Man, it occurs throughout Scripture. And it refers generally to humans as distinct from God. So God distinguished himself from sinful humanity by saying, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, God is not like humanity. And the psalmist also made this distinction. Psalm, uh, Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Both of these verses that I've cited are parallelisms, which basically use the, the word man and son of man interchangeably. So son of man is used in these two passages. Job does the same kind of thing. Solomon does the same kind of thing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they all use the phrase in the same way that son of man is basically synonymous with mankind or humanity, especially emphasizing the lowliness or subordination of humanity when compared with God. Second, Son of Man was God's repeated nickname for the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Some of you uh, try to avoid the book of Ezekiel because it's so strange and and difficult to understand. But that book is one where uh, Ezekiel is the prophet that God is referring to constantly as the Son of Man. He was God's prophet during the time when the southern kingdom of Judah was being destroyed by Babylon and many of the people were being exiled. 
And more than anyone else, God commanded Ezekiel not only to speak the words of God, but to depict what God was intending to reveal to his people in his own, in his own life, in his own body, in his own actions. So Ezekiel was sort of a stand-in or a symbol of the people who were sinful and rebellious, and they needed to be reminded of their desperate dependence upon God, that they were mere humans and that God is the one who is overall and in charge of this stuff. So yet again, the phrase son of man seems to be synonymous with man or humanity. And yet again, it emphasizes the inferiority of man when compared with God. The third thing I want to point out is that the prophet Daniel, now this is where we're going to start getting to this Daniel 7 passage. If you want to start turning there, you can. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. The prophet Daniel uses the phrase son of man twice. Once in the passage that we're talking about and one time elsewhere. Uh, he used the, the uh, phrase son of man one time in the same kind of way that Ezekiel does, where son of man refers to Daniel himself. Both Ezekiel and Daniel were prophets about the same time. They both were exiled to Babylon about 15 to 20 years before Jerusalem fell. But Daniel lived among the king's court, whereas Ezekiel lived more like a typical prophet. You know, isolated, crazy, poor, strange. The phrase son of man, as I said, it shows up once to refer to Daniel himself, just like God did with Ezekiel. And the other reference is in that passage that I've, I've cited here this morning, where the son of man is mysterious. He is presented before the ancient of days and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the one place in the Old Testament where son of man takes on more significance than merely being a synonym for man or humanity. So son of man here is the one place in the Old Testament where it doesn't just generally refer to humanity, but there's a certain kind of humanity, a certain kind of human, in fact, that's being referred to here. Daniel's son of man is human. That's the strange and fascinating point of Daniel's vision. But this son of man is also able to approach the ancient of days without suffering condemnation or judgment. In fact, Daniel's son of man gets the opposite. He doesn't get condemnation and judgment when he approaches the ancient of days. Instead, he receives dominion and glory and a kingdom from God himself. Now, this taps into one of the biggest themes of all of Scripture. But let's just notice here that Daniel's vision of one like the Son of Man became the quintessential word picture of the Messiah who was to come. This is what Israel was expecting. One who would be like that. A Messiah who would be like that. And that's exactly the way that Jesus used the phrase during his earthly ministry. So fourth subpoint underneath my last point of the sermon here is that Jesus claimed to be the son of man, not to show humility. Jesus was not saying his most favorite way to refer to himself as the son of man. He was not in this way relating to humanity, but he was making a claim to be that one that Daniel saw 600 years before. So Jesus was not being humble. He was always humble, of course, but he wasn't being, you know, overly humili- uh, showing humility when he was saying he was the son of man. He was making the claim that he is that son of man. He was declaring that he was the long-awaited Messiah. The gospel writers record Jesus using this phrase to refer to himself more than 80 times. Jesus said the son of man has authority to forgive sins. The son of man is Lord or master or ruler of the Sabbath, Jesus said. The Son of Man, Jesus claimed, has charge even over the angels and distributes God's justice. 
Now, of course, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus said. And the Son of Man is the one who sits at the right hand of power and will come on the clouds of heaven. These are all quotes from what Jesus said about the Son of Man. So the reason why I've selected Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and this strange passage from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and why I've bounced around to many other texts, uh, though we've tried to focus our, our attention there, is because Christians have long believed that Daniel's vision, this heavenly view of what happened, is exactly the, what took place after the disciples lose sight of Jesus on earth. Uh, Christians have long understood that Acts chapter 1 is what the disciples see, and Daniel 7 is what heaven sees. So think about it like this. Daniel 7 is up where Acts 1 left off. So in Acts Luke tells us, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. And then, if we pick up with Daniel and his prophetic vision centuries earlier, this is what happened next. With the clouds of heaven, there came, as it were, into the heavenly court, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God the Father, and was presented before him, measured, evaluated before him. And what's the answer? What's the result of this evaluation? To him, to this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. That is, worship and obey him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, Easter or Resurrection Sunday is an annual date on the calendar when we mark that event of human history that changed everything. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, and we praise God that he has fulfilled every one of his promises in the person and work of Christ. And yet this is not just a reality on one Sunday each year. This is a universal explosion that echoes down the corridors of time, touching every aspect of human existence. Because Jesus lived and died, sinners like us can have forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus was raised to life, those who repent and believe may rest assured that they too will be raised. Because Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, Christians presently have an intercessor, a mediator, before the throne of God above. Because Jesus presently rules and reigns, as King of kings and Lord of lords, we must live every day of our lives in love and in submission to this good king so that he might find us faithful, obeying and trusting in him when he comes. Whatever the news headlines say, whatever our life circumstances appear to be, whatever chaos we see happening around us, the Bible teaches us a clear truth. And that is that Jesus died, that he was resurrected from the dead, that he ascended, and that he rules and reigns the entire universe at this very moment. And that he himself is bringing all things to his good ends. May God find us, may Christ find us when he returns, those who are trusting in him 
clinging to Him as our one and only Savior, living in obedience to His good and right rule, and awaiting that coming. Would you bow with me? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.